0: How and when was Paul saved? A simple little study tonight to remind us of what we believe about salvation that is different from what most believe. And let's consider the Apostle Paul and his experiences. He started out as Saul of Tarsus and then became the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 on his first preaching trip when he was also called Paul. When was Paul saved? Most think this question should be very easily answered. Of course, he was saved on the Damascus road. They're certain that salvation is by a decision for Jesus, and that Paul must have made that decision somewhere on the road to Damascus. And that's when he was saved. And it's important for us, from time to time... To review our doctrine of salvation and to go through this process again of what does the Bible actually say about Saul of Tarsus. Right. Our great apostle testified often about his salvation as you're going to see. And with his theological wisdom, we should learn a lot Amen. from Paul's testimony. Right. Because if there's, if there was ever anyone that would have wanted to get it across to us straight, right. it would have been the apostle Paul, how and when he was saved. Now this is where we meet Paul in the Bible. Saul of Tarsus. Is this Saul of Tarsus here? That's Stephen. And this is Saul of Tarsus, a young man, keeping their coats. Brethren, we have got to think tonight, we just sang three wonderful songs about salvation, what made the difference between Saul of Tarsus and this angry crowd wanting to stone Stephen? They never had a change. They tried to kill Paul later in his life. Why, when they saw Stephen's face glowing, didn't anyone say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Because they hadn't been changed. And they weren't changed. The vast majority of the nation didn't change. Saul, before the Damascus road, In Acts 9, he says he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Just think about those words. The kind of man that Saul of Tarsus was. Breathing out. It was just his life calling, his vocation, his breath, was threatenings and slaughter against the saints of the Lord. He persecuted this way unto the death. That's the way of Jesus of Nazareth. He did many things contrary To Jesus of Nazareth, he told Agrippa, these are different testimonies of Saul about what his life was like before the Damascus road. He persecuted the church of God and he wasted it. His words. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and he was injurious because he hurt everyone that he came in contact with that was a believer. This was Saul of Tarsus before the Damascus road. But something happened on the Damascus Road. And we want to revel in the fact of what Jesus Christ did to get us, the worst enemy of the Christians in the early church, to be our great apostle. He struck him down around noon with a light that was brighter than the sun. Now the sun at noontime is decently bright. But he struck him down with a light, and those that were around him heard a voice but no articulation in it, So they didn't know what was being said to our Saul of Tarsus. There's another picture of him being knocked down off a horse with a light shining down. There he is. He was blinded, you know, for three days after this event. When the voice stopped talking to him and had told him to go into Damascus, he had to be led by the hand, the Bible tells us, because he couldn't see. Paul spoke of this event often. This Damascus Road event is spoken of in Acts 9, where Luke records it as history about Saul of Tarsus. Then in Acts 22, Paul gave his testimony to the leaders of the Jews. And in Acts 26, Paul told King Agrippa about that event on the Damascus Road that we just saw visualized in that picture. In Galatians, the first two chapters... Paul told the Galatians about it, and we had that read to us very recently in our pulpit. And in 1 Timothy 1, Paul told Timothy, there's five times at least, I'm not talking about little tiny mentions of it, but there's five times where the Apostle Paul referred to Jesus Christ calling him to be a preacher of the gospel, and the event was on the road to Damascus. Most think it went like this. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, will you accept me as your personal savior? Now, because we need to think about this. You know, that kind of language isn't used anywhere in the Bible, and yet most people think that that's the way you're supposed to get saved. But it's nowhere in the Bible, and it especially wasn't on the road to Damascus. They would then think, That Saul responded, Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. I'm afraid of hell. But there wasn't anything like that either. And Jesus didn't respond by saying, you're born again. Your name's in heaven now, Saul, because you just said, I'm a sinner, save me. And Saul might have responded, is that all there is to it? What if I die tonight? Jesus might have said, Heaven's a done deal, bud, no matter what you do, because that's what they teach. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. As long as you made your little decision for Jesus, then you're going to heaven, because when you made that decision for Jesus, you were born again, and the angels wrote your name in the book of life. Totally contrary to what the Bible teaches us, but that's the common scheme. You know, then Saul would have said, but I want more assurance, because I know I will sin. Jesus might have responded don't worry at all about that remember once saved always saves Saul Saul could have then said well that was fast and easy what shall I do next keep the great commission replicate man you need to get out there and replicate haven't you ever heard that before I'm on it Lord I'll pack them in like New Spring. So most think that it went like that. That that's what happened on the road to Damascus. Here's what the Bible says. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? And this is one of the most sincere, convicted lords in the Bible. Or in the history of our race. Was Saul of Tarsus' response to the Lord Jesus Christ? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Lord, he now owns Jesus as Lord with the strongest statement that can be made. And it's not save me. It's what can I do for you? What a difference. do you understand what happened? Amen. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Not will you save me. Not I want to go to heaven when I die. Not thank you for loving me. What wilt thou have me to do? That is conviction. That is conversion. That is a changed life. And 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that no one can say Lord like that without the work of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Jesus said, Arise and go into the city, and I'll tell you what you're going to do for me. Who's the man down here? Saul of Tarsus. Who's this guy? Ananias, a certain disciple in the city of Damascus. He laid a hand on him, gave him his sight back, told him to get baptized, and fed him. And as soon as he was fed, after three days of fasting... What did he do next? He preached. Where? In Damascus. Was he effective? He mightily convinced the Jews that Jesus was Christ. There's another picture. The hand on Saul giving him his sight back. Then he baptized him. Why did Jesus appear to Saul on the road to Damascus? Because Saul was one of his elect. And an apostle to be. That's why. In fact, if you read Paul's testimony, it's this one right here. As to why Jesus appeared to him. To make him an apostle. To show him what he was supposed to preach. And he tells us that over and over again. That that's why Jesus appeared to him. Evangelism's goal. The goal of real Bible evangelism is to convert not to not to cause them to be born again. Not to get them elect, but to convert elect. That's what Paul wrote in this verse right here. That's what Paul tried to do with his life, was to convert the elect. And we know that Jesus was doing the same thing with Saul of Tarsus. Jesus had to call Paul to the ministry. Acts 26 and verse 16 puts it this way. But rise... This is Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus. And stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. Now this should be the answer, shouldn't it? Yep. I have appeared to thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. Jesus was going to appear to Saul of Tarsus and to Paul in other events, but I have appeared to thee to make thee a minister. That's the primary emphasis as we read about Paul. Because Paul was long saved before he was on the road to Damascus. Jesus had to get Paul in the ministry. Jesus had to show Paul what to preach. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Galatians 1, 15-17 tell us that Jesus appeared to Paul to show him what he was going to preach to the heathen. That's you and me and the Gentiles before us, including those in Dalmatia, which was part of Illyricum, or what used to be called when I was in school, Yugoslavia. God showed him mercy, according to a verse that we're going to look at in a moment, God showed Saul of Tarsus mercy for unbelief. Does that mean everyone who's an unbeliever? Does that mean reprobates who don't believe get shown the mercy of God? No. No. What in the world can that mean? Except that Paul was already a born-again child of God, serving God ignorantly in unbelief, and Jesus had mercy on him and used that zealous and faithful man to preach the gospel. This is a most interesting little statement that we're going to see in 1 Timothy 1.13 that God's mercy was upon Saul because of unbelief. I thought you had to believe according to the Arminians in order to get the mercy of God. Saul had to not believe to get the mercy of God. In this particular case, if we're going to trust the Bible about his salvation experience. Why did Saul call Jesus Lord? Because Saul was already born again well before this event. Or he would not have called Jesus Lord. A change took place either one minute, one day, one year, one decade before that, and it's going to be a whole lot longer than one day, in order for Paul to call Jesus Lord. Many, think about this, the crowd that stoned Stephen, the crowd that wanted to kill Paul, the Jews that hated Paul, many saw greater miracles than a bright light on the road to Damascus. Much greater miracles, but they hated and killed Jesus in light of those miracles. Those miracles did not affect them. The number of miracles that Jesus did during his life was, was large number. And they were significant. There were storms calmed. There were the dead raised. The blind saw. The lame leaped. The dumb spake. Devils were cast out. A small lunch fed 5,000 men with much left over after feeding the women and children as well. This is just precious. To think about, all Paul saw was a bright light and met Jesus of Nazareth. As soon as he met Jesus of Nazareth and knew that he was the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? But when Jesus preached that or testified of that on trial, why didn't Caiaphas or Annas or any of the high priest's company or the elders of the Jews or the Pharisees or the Sadducees believe on him? Because God had already made a change in Saul of Tarsus because he was already born again. Jesus counted him faithful before the Damascus road as I'm going to show you in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. He was already faithful because he was serving God with a pure conscience. God's grace then supplied Saul's faith and love. You know, we sang in a song, I know not how God's wondrous grace has conveyed to me faith. Well, Paul's going to tell you the grace of God was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. God drew the Saul of Tarsus to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe on him. But not the rest of the group that was with him. We don't read another thing about them. What did Saul do to be born again? Absolutely nothing. Because God regenerated him first. Before he did anything or would have done anything. God the Father drew Saul to Jesus. Just like Jesus taught in John 6.44. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. God opened his heart like he did Lydia's. In Acts 16. Whose heart? The Lord opened. The kindness, the love and mercy was of God. As Paul testified in Titus chapter 3 of God's kindness toward him. Saul was born again earlier, just like Cornelius. When you're presenting salvation to someone, or if you want to review salvation for yourself, it's pretty simple. First pass, the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. Second pass, the five phases of salvation. The third pass would probably be when was Cornelius saved to give a living demonstration of the different phases of salvation. We know that about Cornelius and we're learning it tonight about Saul of Tarsus. What did Saul do after his conversion? He got baptized to wash away his sins. That's what it says in Acts twenty-two sixteen. Ananias said to Saul, Why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Did he legally wash away his sins, vitally wash away his sins, or did he symbolically wash away his sins in the waters of baptism? He symbolically washed them away. We deny the church of Christ and others that try to make that verse prove that you get rid of your sins by being baptized. This was figurative for the answer of his good conscience because Jesus had washed his sins away in the blood of the cross. Paul then got busy preaching right there in Damascus, as I've mentioned. He never looked back, but showed a total change from that point on because he was converted. We have a verse. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is a practical verse. That is not a legal verse. That is not a vital verse. That is when you hear the gospel... It should change your life. God has already changed your nature. You should change your life by responding to that message of Jesus, the Son of God, the High King of Heaven, the Lord of the Universe, is your brother, your high priest, your apostle, and your Savior. And it did, Saul of Tarsus. He fought a good fight, he kept the faith, and he finished his course. As he testified in the last chapter that he wrote of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul left a lot out of his testimony. Jesus had no invitation of any kind to get Paul saved. There wasn't a single word about Ananias. Get down there and get that man saved. Get down there and get that man's eyesight back. He can't see. Baptize him, feed him, and get him to the synagogue. He'll preach for me. There's no invitation. There's nothing about the love of God. There's nothing about Saul. You're a sinner. All the stuff that we have heard over the years, Paul did not accept Jesus as Savior or open his heart. There's nothing said like that because it's not said there and it's not said anywhere else in the Bible. He was silent about getting saved or born again because he was already saved and already born again by the work of God in his life. You know, these things that I've just gone over the invitation here, there wasn't one accepting Jesus, getting saved, getting born again. These things are of paramount importance to most. They base their whole religion on getting someone to say these things or to do these things, but it's left out. In Acts 9, it's left out. In Acts 22, Acts 26, Galatians 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1, it's left out. If Paul neglected those things, should we emphasize them? No. We want to emphasize what Paul emphasized. When you see Jesus Christ in the gospel, it should be, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, what can I do for you? Not, Lord, I want to go to heaven when I die. How about, Lord, what can I do for you? And the Lord's given us a few things we can do for him. You know, no, the others are not taught that. Do you know what they're taught? Replicate, man. Replicate. They're not taught taught to sanctify their lives and to be holy as he is holy. That is not emphasized. They're not taught how to submit themselves to civil government, how to submit themselves in the job, how to treat their spouse, how to treat their children, how to treat their parents. They're told, just get out and replicate. Get out and keep the Great Commission. Okay now, this is Paul. Can you see the chain? So he's got a chain. His hand is outstretched, so he's appealing to someone. Here's a man, here's a man, and here's a woman. Who is it? Agrippa and Festus. And Bernice, he's on trial for his life. There he is again. Agrippa, Festus, Bernice, Paul, chained. Remember what he told Agrippa? I I would that thou wert altogether such an one as I am, but for this chain. When Agrippa said, almost, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. There he is again. There he is again. Okay, 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. This is to Timothy, Paul giving his testimony. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. What did Jesus Christ do because of counting Paul faithful? He put him into the ministry then when was Paul faithful? Before he was in the ministry. Faithful at doing what? Faithful at serving God with a pure conscience and with red hot, pedal to the metal zeal, but in ignorance. Paul honored Jesus Christ in this verse for his apostolic ability and his apostolic ministry. The past tense, he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He put him into the ministry because he counted him as being faithful. The past tense got Paul in the ministry. Saul had been faithful in ignorance. Until the Lord shows us the way of truth more perfectly, that's all we can give him is faithfulness in ignorance, faithfulness in unbelief, faithfulness in error. It's the best we can give until we're shown the better way. Apollos. Was Apollos faithful? Acts chapter 18 tells us that he was a mighty man, eloquent, a mighty man in the scriptures. He was an eloquent man, fervent in spirit, feared the Lord, but he only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. And so they explained the way of God to him more perfectly, but he had already shown that he was faithful. 1 Timothy 1.13 Let's go back to this verse right here. Don't forget these words. They're they're words that we've already appealed to once, and you want to remember them, that Paul got in the ministry because Jesus counted him faithful, putting me into the ministry. That means faithfulness before ministry. That means faithfulness with the level of knowledge that he had. And do you know what his knowledge was at that point? King Agrippa... I thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. Saul had been faithful in ignorance. First 1 Timothy 1.13, who was before, now he's going to explain that time before he was put in the ministry. I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't hate God. I didn't have personal motives. I wasn't out trying to build a following. I was fearing God and serving Him with a clear conscience from my forefathers. He would say on trial in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1. He would say again in Acts 24 and verse 16. He would write Timothy in 2 Timothy one three and say that he had had a pure conscience in serving God. But he did it ignorantly in unbelief. And because of that, God showed mercy to him and put him into the ministry, though he was the greatest enemy of Christianity. But he was not an enemy of God. He was a lover of God and a servant of God, being born again, but not having the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. He only had the Jewish training that Jesus was an imposter and a blasphemer. Then he met him. And it changed him practically. Paul's life as a Jew was vicious against Jesus Christ. God showed him mercy because he did not believe. You know, if you, if, if you know something, if you believe something and you go against that, that's a presumptuous sin. And that's a terrible thing. Paul didn't do that. He was ignorant. He didn't know that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of the prophets. God forgave the vicious crimes due to his ignorance. As he says right there in that verse, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and we are talking primarily about his ministry. God put me into the ministry on this basis, who was before a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was injurious. But he counted me faithful because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing it with all my might. 1 Timothy 1.14, he's continuing how the Lord changed him, The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Is there anyone in the New Testament that loved Jesus Christ more than Paul? No, because the grace of God drew Paul to Christ, opened Paul's heart to Christ, and was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. God's great grace gave Paul much faith in Christ. His great grace gave much love. For Christ to Paul. Conversion like this takes exceeding abundant grace. And God showed it toward that man, the enemy of the early church. Here's the verse you know well. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul knew that Christ's death in this world saved him. He says so in this verse. The message of the gospel for the elect is glorious. It's worthy of all acceptation. We should accept this statement. We have many times before. But like tonight, we should re-embrace it again. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God's yeah. sinful elect, he came in to pay the legal price for them so that they could have eternal life. And it should rejoice our hearts. We get so distracted with so many other things outside this church and even in the church. And we want that to be our focus. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's a faithful saying. And it's worthy of you accepting it tonight. And it's worthy of you embracing it tonight. And it's worthy of you tonight measuring your faith and love. How do they compare to the Apostle Paul's? Because God's grace was exceeding abundant toward him. And he has been exceeding abundant toward us. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ like Paul did? Paul believed by his past life that he was the chief of sinners. And here's the verse that I've read to you twice already tonight. How be it for this cause I obtain mercy. Now see, here's a second reason why God chose Saul of Tarsus to save him to be an apostle. The first one was because he was ignorant in serving him. The second one here is that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern that to them which should hereafter believe on him, to life everlasting. For 2,000 years, no sinner has been able to come to the Bible with an honest conscience and think that God can't save me because I'm too bad of a sinner because the example, the pattern in the pages of the New Testament is Saul of Tarsus. I mean, how many have come to the New Testament and been guilty of the blood of many saints of the Lord Jesus Christ? How many have imprisoned believers on Christ? And so there's this great example we have in the Bible, and it's Saul of Tarsus, and he's our apostle. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. One reason God saved Paul was to encourage you. You should enjoy and appreciate and be thankful hearing about this man. If Jesus saved Paul, his great enemy, he can surely save you. Faith which is mentioned right here, is the evidence and assurance of eternal life, that everyone following Paul would be able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, know they have eternal life, because Paul was saved by Jesus Christ. Now this is one of Paul. Paul's just finished a decent sentence about his salvation and call to the ministry, and then he does this. Notice, this is in the middle of a personal letter to Timothy. In fact, it's in the first chapter, And he's got an amen. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's in the middle of a letter. This is the way we should think. This is the way we should sometimes speak of just wanting to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This is how Saul of Tarsus had God's grace shown toward him in an exceeding abundant way with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So he did things like this. Common for Paul, he broke into spontaneous praise. Though it was a letter, he's putting an amen right in the middle of it because he's saying amen to his own praise. Do you love? Do you love to praise God and Jesus Christ like this? Do you love to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the evidence of a changed life. You know, the changed life is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The evidence of the changed life is, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. We want to we have mouths filled with praise. Amen. Hearts filled with praise. Minds filled with praise. Because what a Savior we have. Who's this and what happened? There's Paul shipwrecked on the island of Melita in the Mediterranean Sea on his way to Rome, and there's soldiers making their way to land. How many were hurt or lost that night? None. What was Paul's terminology that they wouldn't lose a a hair? That <laughs> the whole. That's pretty. That's pretty comforting especially when he's so cheerful about it after the angel appeared to him. There he is pulling a soldier up um, on the island of Melita. He had a rough life, but he, he gave that life so gladly to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for him. When was Paul saved? Most Christians only see one single event of salvation. They only think of their decision to accept Christ. They forget so much to pressure you They will ask, when were you saved? They want you to give them some date. There's nothing like that in the Bible. Do you know how Paul knew he was saved at the end of his life? I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Mm -hmm. That's how he knew. This idea of some little decision... Just all those people that are going to meet Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't didn't we do miracles in your name? He's going to say, I never knew you. Because that decision idea of salvation is contrary to the Bible. They do not see other salvations or rightly dividing the word of truth. So what did Paul say about the timing of his salvation? Very quickly, before the world began. Paul said to Timothy, this is Paul, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Jesus Christ saved Paul and saved Timothy by his, Jesus Christ's own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. No one wants to preach it. We preach it. Jesus Christ purposed that he would save Saul of Tarsus by his grace before the world began. Paul was saved by God's gracious purposes in Christ. He knew this had been given to him in eternity past. This is the eternal phase of salvation. The first one, the first phase, the eternal phase, because it took place before the world began. All the names in the book of life were written in the book of life before the world began. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Yes. And see, this is Paul giving his testimony because 2 Timothy 1.9, which is this verse, was written by Paul. Then he said at the cross of Calvary, and this is the verse we've already had, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So this salvation depended upon Jesus Christ coming into the world in the fullness of time, which was 4,000 years after the world began. Paul was saved by Jesus dying on the cross for him. When Jesus came and died in this world in 30 AD, 4,000 years after the foundation of the world. This is called the legal phase. This is where Jesus paid to God the necessary price to cover our sins at the tribunal of heaven. God had chosen to save Saul before he made the worlds. He wrote his name in the book of life of the lamb slain, but then the lamb had to come and be slain. And he was, and this is phase number two. And it took place at the cross of Calvary. So when Paul is asked, when were you saved? Paul would say, well, first of all, I was saved before the world began. Then he would say, I was saved at the cross of Calvary. Then, when he was born again, Paul wrote to Titus, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is a different part of salvation. This is the Holy Ghost giving us a new nature, being born again, being quickened, being made into life. Being given a new man. Being generated again. Paul was saved. We've got this word the third time now. Paul was saved by the Holy Spirit regenerating him. It happened during his life. Just like sometime during your life, there had better have be a change when God changed you by regenerating you and giving you a new heart, a new spirit, a new man inside you. Because the old one is unfit for heaven and it's on its way to hell. It's called being quickened in Ephesians chapter 2. This is the vital phase. Vitality refers to the life principle being inside you because you've been given life by the Holy Spirit and it takes place when you're born again. John the Baptist, we believe, was born again in his mother's womb. You can't cause yourself to be born again. There is nothing you can do to get born again. Because anything you do in order to be born again means it's your old man, it's your fleshly man that's doing it, and that man can never please God in anything he does. So God has to cause you to be born again first. That's the third phase of salvation. Paul, when were you saved? Before the world began, when Jesus died on the cross, when the Holy Spirit regenerated me. Amen. Amen. When converted to the truth, in First Timothy 4.16, Paul wrote, Timothy, take heed unto thyself, and unto the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself, and them that hear thee. Paul wrote these words, so Paul knew that there was another salvation, another phase of salvation, another aspect of salvation that depended upon taking heed to himself, And taking heed to the doctrine. Believing and obeying the truth of God's word. That's why it's called when we're converted to the truth. Paul was saved this fourth way by believing and obeying the truth. This began when he met Jesus on the Damascus road. On that Damascus road, all of a sudden with that light from heaven and that voice and that power of God toward him, opening his heart and filling him with faith and love toward Christ Jesus, he realized that the Messiah he had been persecuting, the Messiah he had been opposing, the Jesus that he had thought he ought to do many things contrary to him, was indeed the Messiah of God. And that was the beginning of his conversion. You know, he spent three years in Arabia being taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ, where all the details were filled in. This is called the practical phase. And it's when we believe and obey the gospel, and it's phase number four. Paul, when were you saved? I was saved before the world began, when God purposed to save me, and that signed, that settled it. But then Jesus had to come and die for the payment of my sins on the cross of Calvary. Then the Holy Spirit had to come and regenerate me with a new nature. Then he had to show me, About himself. And I heard the gospel. I saw Jesus. I believed. I saw the scriptures fulfilled. In Jesus of Nazareth. So he was converted to the truth. And then when he's glorified in heaven. Romans 13. Paul wrote this. When were you saved Paul? This verse. I'm not saved yet. And do you know what? We're reading it 2,000 years later. And do you know what we add? He still ain't saved. And that. This is Paul, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. There was a salvation that Paul was looking forward to that he didn't have yet when he wrote the epistle to the Romans. And he still doesn't have it. Because Paul will be saved, notice will be, future tense, Paul will be saved when Jesus raises Paul's body to life in the resurrection of the great day that is coming soon. This will not take place until Jesus returns. Romans 8, 23 says, We are waiting for our adoption. We are waiting for our adoption. You know, the Bible says in the New Testament that we are the sons of God, but Paul said we are waiting for our adoption. To wit, I love it when the Bible says, this is what I mean by the words to wit, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies have not yet been bought back from the grave because that will show the final purchase price of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, body, soul, and spirit. And until that happens, we're not fully saved because our body hasn't been saved yet. Out of the ground, it has not yet been adopted. Our body has not yet been redeemed. The final phase... Is what we call this one. It doesn't happen until we're glorified in heaven forever. So there's no one in this room that is saved this way yet. And this is phase number five. Paul, when were you saved? I was saved before the world began, when Jesus died on the cross, when the Holy Spirit regenerated me, when I met him on the road to Damascus, and I'm still not saved in final salvation of my body being glorified in heaven with Christ. Paul was born again, like Cornelius, before the Damascus road. He was already counted faithful, living with a pure conscience. God listed Cornelius' works in Acts chapter 10, 1 through 4. God listed Paul's faithfulness in 1 Timothy 1, 12. Paul got unusual mercy for unbelief as a child of God. Otherwise, if you have his unbelief as a reprobate, then all reprobates that don't believe, we certainly don't want to get them believing because they're going to get God's mercy for not believing. This summary is consistent with all that's written of the Apostle Paul and all that he wrote about salvation. Paul's zeal never changed, just the goals for his zeal. When were you saved? Paul's phases 1 and 2, before the world began at the cross of Calvary, and glorification are exactly identical to yours. God chose us in Christ before the world began. He sent Jesus to die 2,000 years ago. And we're not saved yet because we're not yet glorified in heaven. Phase number three, vital salvation, is being born again. Do you have a changed life to prove that you're regenerated? I mean a changed life. All things are new. A changed life. That is the evidence of vital salvation, or or phase number three. Number four, practical salvation is obeying the gospel. Are you totally committed to following Jesus Christ? You know, you have to ask yourself tonight, I see that God put a great deal of emphasis on Saul of Tarsus' salvation experience in the Bible. Do I have the evidence that he had? You need to ask yourself tonight, do you do I have a changed life proving that I've been born again? Am I totally committed to following Jesus Christ? If you need a review then go home and check out Tony the Evangelist. Do you have a changed life to prove regeneration? Are you totally committed to following Jesus Christ? God had saved Paul before the world began, sent Christ to die for him, regenerated him, and then put himself right in Saul's face on the road to Damascus. And Saul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He didn't say, thank you for saving me. He didn't say, make sure I go to heaven make sure you keep me out of hell. He said, what can I do for you, Lord? And that is the best response of all. And that shows the most evidence for eternal life of wanting to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began. We are thankful that you sent him in the fullness of time to die on the cross as a substitutionary atonement and the second Adam for us. We are thankful that in time, in time after our conceptions, you sent the Holy Spirit to regenerate us so that we were born again. We thank you that you have sent the gospel to us, the good news and the glad tidings that Jesus of Nazareth, your son, the prophesied Messiah, sits on the throne of heaven and is our Savior. We believe it. We want to obey Him better. Heavenly Father, help us to that end. And we believe that Jesus Christ is coming for us soon when He will raise the dead, the wicked dead and the righteous dead. And there will be a great judgment. And we will be judged righteous because of what He has done for us. But, O Lord, help us to walk out of here tonight, Lord What wilt thou have me to do for you? To show a a godly, regenerated, changed response to what you have done for us. We thank you for this evening. See us safely to our homes. Bless us by your grace. Cause your Holy Spirit to encourage and comfort, instruct, remind, and convict us in our hearts that we would love the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in Him with the change and effect That Paul had. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.